Hello, welcome to some Derbs Talk About Games. I'm your co-host, Mango. And I am your co-host, Buddy. Today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Total War, Warhammer 3, but before we do that, we want to tell the folks at home what it is we do on this podcast. In this podcast, we talk about games, and there is no game that I have been more excited to, to talk about on this podcast, uh, and probably continue to talk about in this podcast for the foreseeable future, than Total War, Warhammer 3. Longtime listeners will recognize that Total War, Warhammer is the... You know, outside of something like WoW or, you know, like League of Legends or like Hearthstone, right? Like any of these sort of like live service games. Um, the, Total War has dominated the, the, the hours of my, my gameplay experience. I have lapped every other game I've ever played on Steam four times in Total War Warhammer 2 alone. Um, with over 900 hours played in that game. Um, and, you know, the, the, the finale is now out. It is Total War Warhammer 3. The focus of the game is on uh, three new, uh, or so two new, what we would call order factions, which are Kislev and Grand Cathay. Kislev being, you know, Europe, Russia, um, other sort of Eastern European sort of like mishmashed together. Uh, and Grand Cathay being a sort of like a medieval Chinese uh, sort of uh, mytho mythological sort yeah, of like Yeah, Silk Road era Chinese, yeah. yeah. And somewhere in the middle of there is uh, are the Ogres, the Ogre Kingdoms, which are the pre-order bonus. They are the game's first race pack, but if you buy the game in the first week, you get the, the Ogre Kingdoms for, for free. I also think that if you have the game on Game Pass, you get the Ogre Kingdoms for free based on something that X told me, but I don't actually have that information yeah um, according to x you can get the ogre kingdoms for free if you link the two which made me very frustrated because i pre-ordered the game specifically because i wanted to play the ogre kingdoms um so you know turns out i missed out on that um but, yeah, yeah so the ogre kingdoms are less involved in the sort of chaos versus order you know conflict that dominates the warhammer world and they're just kind of there to fuck around a little bit like uh greenskins um and skaven right Un uh, you know unequivocally evil but not the evil that is aligned with the chaos gods and then finally there are five uh chaos factions um one for each of the chaos gods the the demons of chaos of corn zinch uh, Slanesh and Nurgle, and then one faction for Chaos Undivided, right, which has access to all four of, you know, the unit rosters and the powers of those different Chaos Gods, but doesn't have, like, the deepest units and mechanics of um, any of those, uh, any of those. So those are, so those are all of the factions. This is twice as many as launched with Total War Warhammer 1 and Total War Warhammer 2. Warhammer 2 brought High Elves, Dark Elves, um, what was it? Skaven, High Elves, Dark Elves, Skaven, and Lizardmen. Whereas Warhammer 1 had the Empire, the Dwarfs, uh, the Vampire Counts, and, uh, the Greenskins. Um, at this point in the game, though, there are more than 20 factions, like, there are more than 20, like, races that you can walk into, right? And many of those will appear in Warhammer 3, even if they're not playable 
like yet, right? So for instance, if you are playing um, certain starts with the, within the Yogurt Kingdoms, you're in the middle of the Empire, you're fighting a bunch of Empire factions. Um, if you have a start that is uh, that is kind of out east in the in the middle of the Darklands, right, which is sort of this area that links the Old World and Cathay, um, you'll run into dwarfs and and greenskins and Skaven and stuff like that. So there is, the, you know, Warhammer Three is built on the bones of one and two and all of the mechanics therein right um so it is it is truly a a a finale to the trilogy in that sort of sense but anyway um we've been we've been playing we've been playing that how many how many hours do you have in so far not a ton i had a personal obligation that meant i didn't get to play as much as i would have liked to over the weekend but sure. i have six hours so you know not, okay not nothing. yeah I have 35 hours, wow. which is also not nothing, though I did take two days off of work on Thursday and Friday and basically no life for the game all, you know, like all weekend. Um, so, um, so yeah, so I've, I've played a bunch and we both started with the prologue, which is maybe like the best place to kind of like get going. And I weirdly want to put a spoiler warning here, but like, I also maybe, how do you, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, so so you know, just kind of like for uh, 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 for for reference, I I want so real like famous YouTubers and streamers got early access because I watched the Mandalore review, which is like he does like these very long reviews of uh, of these of these games, and he so he he had this content behind a spoiler warning in his review, so I think it's it's appropriate to spoiler warning it. Um, it uh, it is kind of like the the meat. It's probably like. According to to Mandalore, at least and he, again, he had an early access copy of the game. It had it had like the most, like the most story of any of the campaigns, uh, at least that he played. So you know, there's a, there's a bit there. Um, yeah, there is definitely story in the other campaigns, at least that I've played. But it is a much more sort of procedurally generated story, whereas the prologue is taking you through a a, a very scripted series of events, yeah, right? You know, and and you are sort of like watching this whole thing um kind of play out because there are no i don't want to say there are no choices there just aren't a lot of sort of ambient choices to be making whereas if i roll up a game as kislev i can approach the kislev campaign campaign in a dozen different ways all of which would quote unquote change the story by those sorts of standards right um so so yeah i guess you know we won't talk about this for forever so if you're listening at home you can skip forward like you know five five minutes or so um the story of the prologue uh, follows the Kislev Prince Yuri as he, you know, journeys north into the Chaos Wastes because the Godbear Urson hasn't been seen in Kislev for a long time, and Serena Katarin is trying to is trying to find him. And as you go through these these battles, Yuri sort of goes on this Heart of Darkness apocalypse now, you know, descent into. Madness. into madness where he eventually kills his own brother and realizes that the voice in his head that we that he thought was Ursin is actually Bellacor, uh a famous you know chaos prince uh demon prince of chaos um who has imprisoned Ursin and in you know in somewhere in the chaos realms right um and is trying to use Urson's power in order to re like return in mortal form to the world, right? Uh, the thing that ends up happening is Yuri shoots Urson with like a chaos-infused gun bullet thing, which is the the catalyst for the whole campaign, right? Urson is dying, 
he is he is having these death throes that are you know causing you know ripples throughout the whole world and everything and the different factions uh are dealing with that in different ways um i don't know what do you, what do you, what did you think i guess um so i thought i thought it was neat i thought it was a good way to introduce like the the campaign mechanics um i found some of it to be like like it is like you know trivially easy right like there's like no chance of anything bad happening yep. in that game at all um I, don't know. I thought it was i thought it was neat um some of it felt like a slug but just because like i knew it was kind of like inevitably easy and like i couldn't just auto resolve the, the battles that i didn't want to play right yeah, just, yeah um like i'm not a particular fan of like the kids love stuff just because like you know they're they're, they're very they're, their style is very hybrid units it's like oh, i don't want to fucking hit these Switch buttons, like, I guess I'll do it. Also, so, like, I've got some criticism of the game, and the one that, like, hit that made me the maddest in the prologue was, um, uh, the, uh, what's it called? Uh, in the, where you're fighting the big demon, like, the second cam big campaign battle, um, uh, it, like, the camera just fucking wouldn't cooperate for me, right? Like, if you went off the edge, the camera would, like, drop in a fucking hole and you couldn't see the ground. And I was just oh like, yeah, because the camera is actually like a it like floats a, a set amount above the ground. So if there's a ditch in the battlefield, the camera falls down. The ditch. Yeah, and even if it's like even if it's like you know like a, a fake you know like bottomless ditch in the chaos realms, right? Yeah. So it would like roll off the edge and drop into a hole, um, and uh, it fucking frustrated the shit out of me. Um, uh, welcome, Mr. Tiny Corn Dog, uh, to the chat. Yeah, welcome to the chat, bud. Um, yeah, I, I definitely feel that there's a lot of like little things that are like that, that really piss me off. The one for me that killed me is in the bottom, you know, they have this new thing where you hit, you know, the in, over the end turn button, it'll be like, go to this unit, go to this Lord or whatever. When you hit that, it, it takes your camera and it zooms it across the map and into whatever the city is. But I'm like... You know, and I already feel like the camera is very claustrophobic in this game compared to some of the other Warhammer games. So I keep pulling the camera back. I keep pulling the camera out so I have a wider field of vision. But anytime I hit that button, it's like, did you want to get insanely close to, like, Tsarina Katarin's fucking face? And I'm like, no, man. <laughs> Just, like, leave my camera be. Move it to where it needs to go, but stop zooming in, right? Like, that, and, you know, like, that's a minor thing. Who cares, right? Yeah, I, but it is the kind of annoyance that, that, uh... Honestly, uh, that's that my... pisses me off. That's, that's, like, that's one of my problems with the battle camera, too. Like, you can't get... Like, for me, I want to be further back without going into tactical mode. Or at the very least, I want tactical mode to, like, let me have my, like, controls, right? Like, you go to tactical mode and all the controls just be like, fuck, right? Like, like I, I, I had to bind, uh, like, a, a pause key so I could be in tactical mode and pause the game because it disappears the fucking time control things. I, I, I hate that. Like, I know. I want, I just want more zoomed out ability to see the field of battle. And maybe there's, like, a kind of, like, a rendering issue there. But, like... It's just like endlessly for, and this this has been true across the series. This is part of why I've bounced off these games previously, not because I, I particularly dislike them, but because like I'll be like I can't get far enough out without like being in a reasonable place. It just it's, I find it maddening, um, and that on top of like the, the, this pit problem I was having in in the second like campaign battle, like really like really frustrated me when I hit that, and that almost like I like there was like a strong urge for me to be like. Mm. 
Do I even want to? Like, I know. I had. I also had. I was like, if I bet, if I posted this shit to Reddit right now, I'd get like a thousand upvotes. If I was like, please God, stop zooming in the fucking camera when I hit like the little notifications on the end turn button. I'm sure I'd get a ton of karma from that. I'm, there's probably a bunch of people because yeah. that's not how it works in Warhammer Two. It just moves your camera, right? It doesn't change the angle or anything. Um, though obviously we have we have, I feel like both of these are pretty petty. You know, they're, they're very minor things, right? But they have an outsized impact. I, and I I was legitimately pretty pissed off. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, like I'm gonna have to deal with that zoomed in battle camera for the entirety that I play this game, right? Like you know, um, and you know, again, it's a little thing, but like that's that's the type of thing that doesn't make me say like make me go like I hate this game. I'm I'm gonna uninstall. It's the type of thing that makes me like quit a game like one night. And then just like never start it again and leave it untouched but installed on my PC for a year, right? Yeah. Like that's that, that's exactly what what that uh, what that causes uh, for in, in, in my mind at least. So okay, I, we I, we weirdly got away from our spoilery, you know, yeah. where, where we were talking about I mean, the we ran through the spoiler though, right? Like I don't yeah, know. yeah, yeah. I, I liked this story, and I think it's a very core Warhammer story. This is the thing that I that I really appreciate about it, right? Is that like you know I I enjoy the Warhammer universe. I'm not a, I'm not an expert in the Warhammer universe, right? You know I've I I have a good understanding of of the way that lore works, but not a fantastic or amazing or outsized understanding of it. Um, but it just felt like such a like, such a pure like Warhammer story, yeah. right? Um, in the sense of, you know, I, I just feel like sometimes there, these, these sorts of things, like, it's like how we talk about the pure Star Wars story being the idea of like getting a bunch of people in a spaceship and going off and doing these adventures. Right. And you can do the same thing. I'm sure for a million, like the, the pure Warcraft story is probably the Horde and the Alliance team up to defeat like an omnicidal big bad, you know, the, the core, uh, I don't know, like superhero story um, is you know, or like the core. Maybe maybe I, maybe I would the call core D and D story is a bunch of adventurers meet up in a tavern and go beat it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. The core Warhammer story, right? Is someone goes off in search of something, and the world is so harsh and brutal and unforgiving that it that it corrupts them, you know, entirely, right? Um, um I, I had a question since you've poke around with this more than me is chaos sure. undivided supposed to be a continue a direct continuation of the story yep okay, yep. yeah yeah it, you, you get to change the name of your demon prince but that would make sense he wouldn't continue you know like de this is how demon princes of chaos work um you know they they become a demon prince and then they ch choose a new different name right um so for instance like as a little different because archaon is the ever chosen of the warriors of chaos and he is not a He's not a demon prince, but Archeon the Everchosen, who's the leader of the Warriors of Chaos, um, we don't know what his his actual name was, right? Because he chose, he got a new name when he, you know, kind of like dedicated himself to, or to de dedicated himself to the Chaos Gods. Um, so yeah, so the demon prince, if you are playing Chaos Undivided with the demon prince, uh, you get to choose your own name, which, and this is super cool, right? Like I am insanely on board with this and I actually hope that it hits everything i would love a version of kind of like a create your own faction leader right um that you can kind of plug and play with some of these different factions uh and uh and sort of like borrow different kinds of like mechanics or or units or just like the way things work i just think that would be like an insanely fun way to sort of open up the game of total world warhammer 3 um 
but you get to you get to then choose and then when you play the game you are also then choosing kind of how to play right because the whole thing with the with chaos undivided is you can actually dedicate yourself to one of the chaos gods right like as you are progressing um you know you can say you know what i'm going to dedicate myself to corn and you uh you sort of fall in line under what corn is doing or you can remain undivided um kind of in perpetuity nice awesome yeah yeah very cool um so uh, you've like i said like we've talked about you've played a lot more than i have um what are kind of your thoughts of the new systems and the new stuff uh, that's, that's okay. Coming into yeah. The so the new campaign is called the Realms of Chaos campaign, which is the, you know, so the in the original game it was just the old world, right? Then they created a new in in Warhammer Two. You there are two maps. There is one that has all of the factions doing a more or less story based mechanic. This is called the Vortex campaign. Um, and then there is a a campaign that is just everybody on the whole world, just you know normal total war you just want to conquer the planet basically that was called mortal empires we know that a similar thing to mortal empires is coming to warhammer 3 but we don't know what it's called or what the details of that are most people tend to call it immortal empires uh but that's not the official name that's just what everybody seems to call it there's like rampant data mining going on right now where people are trying their best to figure out what what provinces are going to be in the the immortal empires map um the story of Mortal Empires is actually a pretty complicated one because they basically had to rebuild the game from scratch in Warhammer 2 to make Warhammer to make Mortal Empires like work correctly because otherwise you would have these insanely long turn timers. And when the game launched there were there still were insanely long turn timers, right? Like most Mortal Empire turns took more than two or three minutes to cycle all the way through um but then they did maybe the smartest and bravest thing i've ever seen a video game company do and they told us that they were skipping a dlc cycle right like a cycle of new content and they basically said we're gonna spend the next however many months just doing optimizations and uh you know like clearing out tech debt stuff right um and it worked right all the clearing out all of that tech debt created a world where mortal empires was now having 30 second turn times right it was insanely quick um and most people think that it is that it or it is it was that optimization that they made right to clear out all that tech debt to really optimize uh the way that the game processes turn timers that is going to pave the way for an absolutely gargantuan uh immortal empires map but we don't we don't know what that's what that's going to look like right now we have this map um which is sort of seen it's kind of like the top down it is not like straight on like a like a normal sort of map projection it is kind of like if you were to point you know like if you were to point the camera at the north pole and make a map out of that perspective that's sort of what the map of realms of chaos looks like right um and it focuses on a couple of different things. Uh, most notably is every time Urson roars as he's dying, right? He's in these like death, death throes, right? And he is roaring. He's going to open up these portals. He's going to open up a, a, a portal, a rift in every single province on the map, right? And you can use those, those rifts to 
uh, teleport between provinces or you can teleport into the chaos realms themselves, right? So like the realm of Corn or the realm of Nurgle or whatever. And then you go and you fight a big crazy battle in there and winning that battle gives you a, uh, you know, a demon soul. And with four demon souls, you can unlock the final battle where you go confront, uh, you know, what's going on with Ursin, basically. So that's the... That's the that's the way that that campaign itself works. Um, in the same way that the Vortex campaign worked by directing players across the map because you were trying to find, like, you know, so for the Lizardmen, right, you were trying to find these, like, ancient Old Ones tablets, and you had to capture and hold specific... Uh, you had to capture and hold specific settlements on the map in order to be digging up these tablets and like progressing your way towards victory. Um, all th this has the same sort of effect, but with the demon souls, right? Where you are, the, the rifts are popping up, you're closing rifts, you're you know, journeying into the chaos realms, doing all this other stuff to try and get the four demon souls in order to, uh, in order to win the game. I quite like it, to be honest. Uh, the, there's a certain amount of there's a certain amount of weirdness that it asks you to do right like these mechanics are kind of in, in change they, they they want you to approach the game in a different way it is a lot more about consolidating your power base than it is about conquering and expanding which is interesting for a total war game all total war games have basically always been about kind of non-stop conquering and expanding. There's a lot of forex games in general, right? Is about like expanding to to one extent or another. Yeah, it's just this thing over like because every thirty turns, you know that every province in your empire is going to be inundated with demons. You kind of can't go insanely wide because then you'll have too many rifts pop up, and you'll be you'll be hosed because of that, right? Um, and so you'll have to you'll have to do this thing where you're running around. And like closing rifts, and you close rifts by running up with an army, and you fight a battle. That'll close the rift. You can also throw a hero. You can walk a hero up to a rift and pay a bunch of money, and the hero will close the rift. Um, and so it's just like that makes. It, I feel I feel like the default way to play Total War for a long time was to kind of create this zone of influence out, right? You you kind of lock down your core provinces and then you are just expanding your borders slowly over time. And eventually those, those core provinces, you don't, there's no action there, right? Like nobody's invading that deep into your, your all of your fights are on the, the frontier. They're on the periphery and your core is very sort of like safe and isolated from all that. This is sort of the opposite of that. This basically says that no, like people are getting deep into your lands at all times and fucking your shit up at all times and if you don't you know respect that if you don't re like respect those incursions um you'll kind of fall flat on your face which is what happened to me in my very first campaign actually <laughs> nice yeah yeah no i mean it's that, that is super interesting and I, I i've actually played so i played the prologue and i played about an hour of an ogre campaign so i have not even hit my first aurora yet so that's 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 interesting mm -hmm. to know um but and so that's that's a, that's a good kind of like in, in, interesting to know about like the overall campaign structure, which is not a change I was expecting. I, what I was kind of more asking about was kind of like the the more kind of like ticky tack kind of system changes, like from like one to two to three that you thought about. But uh, do you oh, have any thoughts on those? Yeah, I mean there are definitely those. Also, by the way, Lou in the chat says that type of map projection is called as as a muthal. 
As a muffle? And you can, as a muffle? Yeah. As, as muffle? I don't know, man. <laughs> and, uh, and she says, Ben, my geography teacher is proud of me right now, which, you know, I get that too. Also, hey, what's up, Slunch? Welcome to the chat. So, um, yeah, there are a bunch of systems level changes, some of which are, uh, you know they 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 hit in a, in a in a really important way. Like the, the to me, the big change is the siege rework, right? Sieges in Total War Warhammer Two are basically the weakest part of that game, where you just have one wall. Once you break through the wall, there is one victory point. If you go and capture that point, you win the battle, basically, right? Um, the the new sieges in Total War Warhammer Three work much more like sieges in traditional Total War games, uh, like historical Total War games. Um, but they, uh, they're, they're all about sort of like different points inside of like a town or a city. There's lots of choke points um, and sort of like little winding routes that you have to kind of navigate around. Um, there are lips and ledges where archers can be raining down, you know, like arrows on people. Um, if you're the defender, you have the option of creating defensive towers or creating um, uh, like barricades to stop the progress of the attackers from kind of like getting through um and if you're the attackers you can go and capture certain points in order to demolish those towers you know like demolish those barricades that kind of thing uh the siege battles are legitimately great and much more fun but also weirdly problematic just because the game hasn't had to deal with them for two whole games now and i do feel like the rosters are weaker at that because of how siege battles kind of like force you to play if that makes sense um you know what i used to think artillery was like really good artillery was basically some of the best units on the map almost any faction that i had that had artillery had four maybe more artillery pieces in every single one of those armies because artillery was insanely useful in any siege battle right you start your battle and you are crashing artillery into the walls, destroying towers, that kind of stuff. The the much the much windier and deeper nature of the settlement maps now make artillery much worse, um, and that's weird. <laughs> and also the so the way that old minor settlement battles used to happen is you know the the settlement itself was outside of the map and it was kind of like if somebody attacked your settlement your garrison deployed in the fields in front so it was basically just a normal battle right that's how a minor settlement battle worked this made cavalry very good because cavalry wants big wide open fields in order to you know like win battles so you know they're making these big flanks they're you know you're doing hammer, hammer and anvil stuff that kind of thing because minor battles now force you into street-by-street street city fighting, which cavalry are not great at, right? Because what cavalry want you to do is they want they want an enemy unit to run into this unit, and then they want to, to loop around back and charge into their butts, basically, right? You want to get rear charges in with cavalry and just do boatloads of damage. It's really hard to do that in a city, right? Where there's very narrow kind of corridors and path passageways because if you charge directly into, you know, like a set of defenders or whatever, charging into those defenders will, uh, yeah, like, that, that'll cause problems for your cavalry because you're not getting the full benefit out of them um and it's just sort of harder to harder to navigate so cavalry and artillery are much worse and high-end infantry are much better so 
I don't know. I don't really know what the, the, the end result of all that is. It just feels like I'm kind of wasting my armies when I'm putting um, when I'm putting artillery and stuff in them. Yeah, no, I mean, I so I, I I I have played exactly one settlement battle so far. It was a minor settlement battle, so I couldn't I couldn't uh, give you any of the uh, the details on that. So I'll, I'll take I'll take your word for it. Um, that feels like an extremely hard nerf to cavalry. So. Like my experience with this battle was that I sent so I again I'm playing overs I sent like the the sneaky noblars off in like a different direction like I, I literally deployed them at like a different entrance to the town and I was able to walk them into victory points and capture things with no interference because uh, none of the units could like none of, none of the other units thought to like walk around and stop them um, there was another ogre faction so it's not like there's like a ton of flyers or whatever but like it feel it feels like it feel, like those those Winding roads feel like not great for any regiment of any size, right? Because there's just like not enough room to spread out. Um, like my, it feels like my most powerful units that are, are like the big ogre units because they're monstrous and they don't have as, as big of a footprint. But like, it feels like my um, both both on this this map and like the camp, special campaign battle, it felt like um, these like these units which are meant to be like you know like like standard army units, like regiments that are like lined up and like face off against each other, just like kind of don't fit in a lot of places. Uh, so it feels a little weird. This also kind of crashes into um, a kind of problem that I've seen, that I've experienced, that I've seen kind of repeated um, by a bunch of other people, which is that like the fighting AI is not great. Like units just kind of like crash into each other and stand still after a while. Which uh, front of the cast decks again identified is probably that they're all default on guard mode, and so if they break a unit, they just kind of stand there um, mm -hmm. instead of chasing. Which maybe I don't know. Something something feels a little bit fiddly about about the uh, about the the battles. Um, yeah, I mean, I I do think that the, the 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 sneaky back capping is probably the best use of cavalry right now in battles, right? You know, I want to be taking my cavalry, and I want to find a way to get them in one of the other random entrances, right? Maybe they just like you know you direct charge one one unit, but you're just trying to break through the lines so that you can then go run around the city while all of their other troops are fighting your infantry, um, which doesn't feel great obviously uh but it is probably the best the best way to go about it the thing that i'm going to be interested in though is how you know like none of these none of these battles that i've done so far are very cavalry focused right so for instance you've got winged lancers as part of the uh um kislev. as part of the kislev faction you know you've got some some stuff as part of uh, uh, Cathay, you know, they have like kind of very, very basic, not incredibly strong, not incredibly weak cavalry units, right? But I imagine in a world where Immortal Empires comes out and I'm now playing Bretonia, right? And the bread and butter of my army is getting big ass awesome cavalry and using those to just like beat the shit out of people. I could run trains on, on armies as Bretonia in, in the old world, because there were so many, there were so many open, you know, any minor settlement battle was just like an open field that was just like tailor made for my huge cavalry units to just like crash into people and kill them all. And that's going to be a, a much harder sell when it comes to settlements. Though I will say, by the way, cavalry are better than in old siege battles where they were literally useless, completely worthless, so bad at those battles that almost all of the time I would just immediately dismiss them from the battle. I would just say, get out of here. I don't even want you to take damage from these stupid fucking towers because you're so useless in this fight. So it's a little column A, little column B, right? They're, they're a little bit better in siege battles because like you can, 
you can make a charge down one of these narrow lanes. It's just not a great use of your of your of your cavalry. That was just not even possible in the old in the old way. Fair um, enough. But you're just fighting so many more siege battles that it it. Um, it makes a it makes a big difference. Um, I would definitely say that it is an improvement, though. I am having much more fun playing through these battles tactically than I did in the old siege battles, just because they were so straightforward and there was not a lot going on, you know, there. Right? Um, having the ability to split my army into multiple sort of sub teams is a huge deal, right? The the worst, I mean, is this is probably a design goal of theirs. The worst I have done in my siege battles is when I pretend that I'm in Total War Warhammer 2 again and I put all of my guys in front of one gate and I go, we're going to bust through these lines and just like that, you know, like that's it. That's the, that's the whole battle. Those you perform worse at because the defender has the option to, to deploy these towers and you just are put, you're putting your whole army in front of these towers so they just pop a million towers right on top of you and they're getting all this free all this damage for free essentially right um whereas the the proper way in my experience at least to fight these siege battles is to try and open as many fronts you want to attack from multiple lanes right and try and break through somewhere right and then you're just like okay now i'm gonna go in and start back capping stuff right or i'm gonna throw my you know i'm gonna throw my my war dogs or something they're going to run through the city streets because they're so fast and go help out this other this other kind of like subgroup um or whatever and i just think that that's like a much more th th that is a much better use of total war and its mechanics to me um than uh than than the old stuff that makes sense that makes sense. Um, yeah. Uh, do you have so what, what factions have you tried out so far? So the first faction I tried was Kislev, right? Um, and like I said, I fucked this one up pretty bad. Kislev has a mechanic that's pretty interesting called like devotion and supporters, right? The the sort of central idea for Kislev is that um, uh, Serena Katarin is a, an ice witch and is part of this special noble court called the Ice Court. Um, and there is uh, the uh, the Kislevite religion, which is like the cult of like the Great Bear. There are these four Kislevite, go uh, Kislevite gods, um, and that's called the Orthodoxy, right? And the idea is that there is this tension between the power of the church and the power of the court, right? Um, and over the course of that campaign, you are getting either like you are you are getting supporters for your faction if you're playing consultant of the orthodoxy you're getting it for the orthodoxy if you're playing katarin you're getting it for the ice court and the first person to get the most followers gets to confederate the other for free basically right um i tremendously fucked this mechanic up by not paying any attention to it basically <laughs> and letting Constalton get really powerful and be, he beat me through all of the objectives. So I was not able to, I was not able to confederate with him. And on top of that, I kept, uh, I, I guess I was playing a little bit like I would have played Warhammer two in the sense that I expanded very quickly without much regard for defense and then rifts spawned and I got a ton of chaos corruption and I only had one army and four provinces and clearing out, a rift in all four of those provinces took a ton of time and effort. And I didn't even get to use the rift to go into like the chaos realms and try and steal his soul. Right. Um, and at that point I basically realized that 
I was very far behind and I could probably bring this campaign back if I wanted to, but I didn't super want to because I had made lots of crucial errors. Um, and, uh, and I, at the end of the day, I think that that's, that's actually a pretty good interaction in my second kids love campaign. I put a lot more emphasis on supporters, right? Which was essentially abandoning economy. I wasn't looking for gold and growth. I was trying to get supporters because I want to win the race more than anything else. Right. Um, and then the other thing I did is instead of creating one incredibly powerful army, which is typically my go-to in these games, right? My first army runs around and is doing stuff. And when I get high-end units, like um, I get the buildings for high-end units, I replace the units of the, that army with those high-end units, and I have a doom stack that can basically 1v1 or 1v2 any other stack on the map, right? Um, but the big, the big difference I made this time was I just sort of left Katarina with sh shitty units for a while and made a second army very quickly that could allow me to deal with the rifts, right? So the rifts popped up, and I could zip around with two armies rather than just one. Um, and closed them all in pretty short order. Also, I recruited way more heroes than I normally do because heroes being able to close the rifts makes a makes a really big difference. Um, and I just think that that's kind of neat, and that's kind of uh, that's kind of interesting because it really got me out of my comfort zone. Of you know, I don't know. There's there's a lot of memes on the Total War subreddit right now that are like, I'm I can't why can't I paint the map red, which is the normal thing you do. You want to capture every settlement on the map, and you want to paint the map red. But that's pretty detrimental to do in this game, and it's probably a losing strategy overall. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so you've you've played Kislev. I know you told me off-cast that you've played Ogres a little bit. Have you touched any of the Chaos factions yet? Yeah, so I played Korn, who's my favorite Chaos god. Blood for the blood god, skulls for the skull throne, right? And Korn is gross, Easily the I, uh, I, I think he's the best faction in terms of just raw mechanics and output. Like I think Corn is just insanely powerful. Corn um, <coughs> has one piece of artillery, um, but no ranged units, and all of his units are just damage dealers. They just do so much fucking damage. And one of the things is they have um, they have what's called physical resistance, which is sort of like armor but not armor if that makes sense um it's sort of better armor armor protects you a lot but there are characters and classes that have armor piercing weapons which negates that right physical resistance protects you a little but it protects you from everything so even if somebody has armor piercing weapons you are still taking less damage Thanks to your physical resistance, right? right? So you don't really need armor. You don't really need melee defense if you have a bunch of uh, physical resistance. And the corn bloodletters have a lot of uh, have a lot of physical resistance, and they just kind of straight up win one v one with any other infantry I've ever put them against because they are a base level greatsword unit, and greatswords are armor piercing anti infantry weapons. So they just shoot, they just mow shit down. And on one hand, that sort of head empty no tactics just run your army into their army your army wins right <laughs> um but on another end what more could i want for the fucking blood god dude like that's that's what he does um, the, the interesting thing about corn is his campaign mechanics where you, when corn raises a settlement or corn can raise a settlement in such a way that he summons a small army and you can go 
and raise a bunch of settlements and you're just getting these you're just like pooping out armies basically for free and the armies are kamikaze armies they don't replenish units ever um you can't grow you can't pull units out of them they just they just fight until they start getting attrition from not fighting enough and then they die right um but just being able to make so many of them in such quick succession uh, it just really like allows you to snowball the shit out of out of Korn's games. Because the other thing about Korn is anytime you raise a mechanic or you raise a, a, a settlement or win a battle, you get a bunch of movement speed back. So you can chain, I run up to you, win a battle, I run past you to the settlement, I win that battle, I run past that settlement to another army, and you're just going like bop, 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 right? Like through the through the map. Is this like, was this like somebody in the beta got like like thirty seven something battles off of a like? Uh, okay, so that was in Warhammer two, which okay. was Torox the Brass Bull. He his is actually much better. It's that that mechanic is called Rampage, but he has to specifically activate it, right? So he activates his thing and he says, "This turn, I am going on a rampage," which says, "Whenever I win a battle, all of my movement speed is is reset," right? Um. Corn's thing is worse than that because it only resets a partial amount. Uh, so, for instance, Scarbrand only gets 35% movement speed from res raising a settlement. And you can upgrade that a little bit to, I think, 55 is the, is like the total. Maybe like 55 or 60. Um, so, it is much harder to do like the insane god turns than on Torox. But you can do them every turn. It's passive. It's always on, essentially. Whereas Torox, you sort of have to like... Torx is almost like setting up uh, uh, setting up, up checkers and like you're doing king me loops, yeah. right? Um, compared to something like Corrin. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. Um, but you can clearly see where the inspiration for that mechanic came from then, right? Like, yep, yep, absolutely. Yep. Uh, so of the of the of the uh, the groups you played so far, what's what's been your favorite? Is it Corrin? Okay, so I played Ogres last night with Rachel in a multiplayer game. I played the two versions of Kislev, the three versions, I guess, including the prologue. Um, I played some of Cathay, and I played Corn. So those are the those are the factions that I've seen so far. You know, I want to say Corn, but I also really like Kislev so far. I Katarina is I'm sorry, Katarina just has a really compelling, I think set of circumstances in the beginning. Corn sort of sort of starts up in the corner of the chaos waste <laughs> where he's really only fighting other chaos factions um the only other person that's nearby him is nikari uh which is the, the slanesh um demons of chaos faction and so even though the corn campaign is just a sort of like fun in this visceral level of you know running roughshod over all these places you're you're raising every settlement you come to right um it is kind of strategically boring because you're so locked in that corner that there aren't a lot of like good moves, so to speak, for how to for how to like play that map. Whereas Katarin is right in the thick of it. You know, she's got rebel Kislevites on her doorstep. She's got the Empire right next door. You know, she's got all these chaos, you know, like the chaos are coming in through Norska, which is also like right there. Um there's there's vampires and greenskins and dwarves in the mountains just to the east and stuff like that and i just think that that start position makes that campaign more fun than corns does um 
I also think that the, the, the because the economy is a little bit more complex, right, where, you know, Caterin's economy is uh, is a more traditional and conventional economy, whereas Corn's economy is bad. And this is this is ha this happens with the aggressive factions, right? You know, the way that you play greenskins is you are making all your money by sacking and raiding, right? You're not making all your money by building up an economic center, whereas the dwarfs want you to build up an economic center. They have very powerful buildings, and all of their buildings will make you lots of money if you can get them to rank three and protect the you know protect those settlements, right? Um, Kislev works a lot like the dwarves in that sense, um, and uh i think that also adds to you know like adds to kind of like the enjoyment of of the campaign so far um cathay also sort of works like that but i just haven't gotten deep enough into cathay to really like to really like say one way or another makes sense makes sense um cathay cathay is making like really makes you rethink that the way that you structure your battles though because the big thing with cathay is you want you want to be in harmony right so certain fact or certain units are aligned with yin and certain units are aligned with yang and you need to put uh yin units near yang units in order to have both of them get a big bonus so when I'm playing Cathay, I'm keeping my archers like very, very tight up into not not quite into melee, but like close to melee, such that like they are they are always getting those benefits and always getting those those big buffs. Very cool, very cool. Um, yeah, and then like you know the ogres are a lot of monstrous units, a lot of meat. Like I, I just love the goof factor on the ogres. Like this is like like the the campaign opens up. And like the, the the wizard character, who is he present in all of them? Is he just like some? Mm -hmm. um, he's for he's. I don't know what his motives are, but um, he shows up to the ogres, and the ogres like we're gonna eat you. And he's like, wait, you could eat the god bear. Um, that's why I've titled the stream "Gonna Eat a God Bear." Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, it's just kind of like, yeah, I'm on board for that. We're gonna we're gonna eat a fucking giant bear, and it's gonna be great. Um, and it, 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 it's just so derpy so far. It's been it's been it's been super fun. Um, yeah, I like the ogres, and the ogres because they are a a race pack. You know, race packs are traditionally completed, right? They don't get any updates after they are out, outside of the Total War Warhammer One race packs. Um, and so, the thing that makes a race pack cool on release is that, like, right now, some of these rosters are a little thin. Especially the Demons of Chaos have very thin rosters, um, just because, like. First of all, the demons themselves are like a lot of them have have shared sort of Over units that have units. different sort of like functions, right? You know, so for instance, uh, Cinch has uh, Forsaken, who are you know human human infantry. Corn has Chaos Warriors, who are also human infantry. Slanesh also has Forsaken, who are human infantry, right? Like, all of them uh, kind of have this same sort of, like, base, more or less. And that really, like, it that feels like it plays out, right? Whereas uh, the Ogres have a completed sort of roster. It's not like there are any holes in the roster that, have, I, that I feel like, oh, they're going to fill that with DLC, like, later down the line. Um, which also happened with the Total War Warhammer 2 races, right? Playing Skaven on launch felt awful compared to playing skaven at the end of the game because skaven at the end of the game had three race packs adding a total of you know 15 units to their roster right so now they have a roster that is really well developed right and um and comprehensive okay very cool very cool 
Um, yeah. Um, uh, so other things. Do you have? Do you have like so? Um, I just want to highlight a couple of things that I, I have had problems with the game. I have like sure. I feel like this game is very buggy, which I'm you know I don't think it's the end of the world, but like I have had besides like the the battle things I've mentioned before and like the the weird camera stuff, like I've had the game crash for me a couple different times. So I've been trying to adjust the graphics oh, yeah. setting settings. Um, if I if I'm not in windowed mode and I click outside the uh, the window, it will like like it's like. It won't crash the game, but it'll make it so I can't click on any UI elements, and I'll have to, like, hard quit the game, which is not great. Um, yeah, that straight crashes my game. I mean, if I'm playing Warhammer, I can't alt-tab, or it crashes, yeah. which is, you know, they recognize this bug, but it fucking sucks. Yeah, Um. what else? There's, like, there's, like, there's, like, it's a very little thing. You know what you're talking about? Like, you know, now they've got these, like, you hit this, instead of hitting again turn, you hit the, like, button that, like, zooms you to the thing to do, right? Um, if you like do the thing manually and you go to hit the button, it'll still show like, you know, go like, you know, skill points on a sign or something like that. And if there's nothing else to do, it'll end the turn. If you click on it before it like, you know, catches up, like there's, it's very, it, it's mildly laggy. So like, I don't know, none of these are like huge deal breakers. Like I'm still enjoying the game. It's not like I want to return it or anything, but it's, it is kind of, it feels, I wouldn't say rushed, but it feels, it feels unpolished. Maybe is the right way to put it. Um, yeah. I mean, that all tab bug seems nuts to me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. um, but you know, it, it also does not have a 100% repro, which those are the worst, right? Yeah. Really painful oh, yeah. bugs that are causing crashes, right? But they don't have a very consistent repro and it's also doing a function that is not something that, I mean, like, I guess is a little behind the scenes thing. This is not the kind of thing that people test for, you know, right, you don't yeah. really test for alt tabbing. You're, you're testing for in-game stuff. You're testing for mechanics. Like, is this mechanic working the way that I want it to, right? Um, Whereas it is very natural for me to play the game when I hit end turn and I alt tab out and I check Twitter for 45 seconds because, you know, the, the end turn is just processing and I'm not going to sit there and wait for that to, to happen, right? But if I do that, <laughs> you know, maybe one out of three times, it crashes my game, right? And I don't know why. And, uh, and so that's just like, that's very painful. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. It, it is... It is. Um, very often very painful, uh, like, yeah. Um, and like, honestly, I, the big, the, the big bugs that I feel like one bug that I found was Lords not attacking each other. It's very common for me to send a Lord against another Lord. Your Lords tend to be, you know, an individually powerful unit that is capable of kind of one V oneing its counterpart across right. the battlefield. Um, and something that I've happened a bunch of times, I feel like it's my Lords just sort of sit there and they don't fight. Uh, which is not great. Um, you know, it's you can work around it. I just send units to attack it instead of lords, obviously. Um, but you know, that that one that one does does really hurt. No, really hurt. I agree. I agree one hundred percent. And uh, to your point, I, I'm sure I like the like like you know, Sega's big and Creative Assembly is fairly successful, but it's not like big big. But I'm sure I like I'm sure I like you know. EA, they're doing this kind of like alt tab testing because this like seems like it's kind of like acceptance testing in a lot of ways. But like this is also mm -hmm. a thing where it's probably like you know, legendary PC games are hard to find bugs for because everybody's got a different setup, right? Like you know, barely you know, there's like a couple like larger swaths of things, but like you, you know, you might even oh, yeah. have problems. I mean, that was the, it was who's the Stellaris guy? I can't remember his name. Uh, they were they released a, they released you know one of their their race packs and there were a bunch of bugs in it, right? And there was a big angry forum thread and the game director 
responded to that forum thread where he just did some math. This is, by the way, the most ballsy thing I've ever seen anybody in game to game development do about this thing. He basically said we have, you know, we have like 24 people in our QA, right? They're working eight hour days, right? And the the DLC takes however many days to um uh you know to launch. And so and he multiplied all those things. So it's like, okay, well 24 times, you know, a 40 hour week and we developed, you know, it it's it took us whatever, 15 weeks to develop the DLC. And probably more than that, 30 weeks to develop the DLC. This is X number of hours. And he was like, there are X many players who bought the DLC day one and played for at least 10 minutes. And he just did, you know, that number times 10 minutes each equals, and it was like way, way more, right? <laughs> to prove the point that like, you know, even with a fully staffed, right? Like 24, that's a lot of QA, yeah, yeah. right? Um, even with a fully staffed team of QA, it's just like the number of hours put into, you know, put into a game uh, is insane. It's it's uh, it's ridiculous how, how much players see immediately, right? Um, and I think the big question is less like, can you release a game that doesn't have bugs in it? And more, how quickly can you respond to those bugs? Right. The yeah. same thing happened in Cardboard Kings. We had a we had a bug pretty deep in the game that was ruining people's things, and we we put out a patch less than twelve hours later. Right. Um, and I think for a lot of those people, you know, a, a lot of people are never even going to see the issue now. Right. And I think for a lot of the people who saw the issue, getting a fix in the same fucking day, like that feels good. Right. Um, and so that's kind of the standard that I'm working with a, a little bit on this stuff. Um, I think it's bad. I don't think it's the worst thing about oh, the yeah. game. Um, but the question is, are these going to be bugs that sit for three months until the first DLC comes out? Or are they going to be bugs that sit for five days and tomorrow they're going to put up, you know, put out a bug fix, you know, patch, nailing down a bunch of these issues? Yeah, yeah. And, like, at least for me, there's, like, you know, there's, like, three alternative bugs that they could fix, and I'd be happy, like, if I can't, for whatever reason, I can't do, um, f like, full resolution windowed mode, right? Like, it just, like, doesn't, like, it won't let me click on, again, it won't let me click on buttons. Are you on, do you have a 1440 monitor? Uh, yeah, 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 I do. Yeah, that's why. I also have that, and I noticed it was not an issue on... Te, uh, a, a 1080p monitor but uh, it doesn't it doesn't recognize 1440 very well yeah um, so the other thing is is if i do like win bordered windowless on 1920 by 1080 um the like it overscans it overscans my monitor i don't know if that's my uh, my monitor thing but i think it's i think it's a universal thing or it seems like it would be um and just like this is like you know if you fixed either fix the windowed bug or you fix the alt tab bug and i'm happy right like because like either one means i can like you know you know go to a different my, my secondary monitor right like yep um and you know that's also you know honestly a fairly niche niche thing in the first place right like i think you know a lot of power gamers will have a second monitor but that's not a universal thing right i think that makes it all yeah i also think that it's the kind of thing that was for instance I think the AI issues are not going to be fixed oh, yeah. for a long time. Yeah. That stuff is hard to figure out, right? Yeah, yeah. That, um, that's like that is like a an engineering problem, right? Like, like the the alt tab is broken thing is like a bug fix, right? Like that's like yeah. AI AI you know be good is a feature development thing, right? Like, yeah. I mean, they had an old AI problem where units were dropping orders in Warhammer Two, and this one killed. I, I hated this bug. Because they, it was literally, they just dropped the orders outright, right? 
Um, so what you would do is you would ha you would like order your whole army, you know, to like you would you would be like you attack you, you attack you, and you go one by one by one. And one of your guys, the bug would happen, and it would just leave this hole because he would sit still. And now all of a sudden, all of his friends are moving up in conjunction, and he's hanging up back here, and it's like, oh my god, this is like ruining my whole fucking formation, right? Um, that bug took them multiple tries to fix, right? I think they released at least three different individual bug fixes to try and find and fix that bug, and it only worked on the third one. Did they do a public um, postmortem on that? I'm curious. Like, did, did they figure out what? Did they publicly release what caused that? I don't remember. Maybe. Okay. Um, and, my, and my guess is that, like, there are multiple things causing – in almost any any case I've ever seen, if there is a bug that someone reports and then someone else – and then we, like, fix it, but people are still reporting it, almost always what's happening there is we're sort of curing the symptom rather than the diagnosing oh, the yeah. disease. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Where it's like – that, this is a this is a knock-on effect of a deeper bug that is happening somewhere silently kind of in the chain and those are the those are the worst those ones are very hard to deal with because what what happens is you just keep you know treating the cough and you're not you're not you know curing the cancer yeah my, I mean I honestly from my perspective and obviously it's more um, this more enterprise software is like the, the worst version of that is regressions which is like you like you know you fix a bug and then you fix another bug bug and the first one pops back and it's like oh god damn it right because that, mm -hmm. that often occurs in the same type of situations right like you've gone into something else and it means like again it's probably an indication you haven't caught solved the root problem you just kind of like put a band-aid over like uh, yeah. another piece of it but yeah no that, it can be infuriating yeah. yeah and i also know i don't know how this works for total war but i also know that ai bugs are typically hard to fix because of how ai is built in general because ai is almost built through sort of like um AI is just tough, right? Like it's, it's, it's yeah, like it it is. You know, we think of AI as somebody sits down and they program a gazillion of these. If then, you know, like if unit marches here, then unit marches yeah. there. But what tends to happen is you are you are sort of building the machine inside of its own machine such that it is inscrutable to basically everyone right where it's like you are asking the you know you're asking the ai to play ten thousand battles against itself and evolutionarily essentially like develop the traits that make it you know like that make it good not not to say i don't i don't know that that's yeah. how they do it in total war obviously it doesn't have to be done that way but like if you if when you when games have ai problems that are built that way it is so hard to fix because it is so hard to peel apart that code and understand why the decisions are getting made at any individual interval yeah, yeah. so i i doubt it's like high high level machine learning um but i bet you it is some form of like some form of kind of like you know uh, accumulate variables to a certain point and then like use those weightings to like out, make a make an outcome decision you can tweak those those weightings but like it's hard to it's hard to tell like what waiting is causing what thing right like you know yep. I, like um I mean even the simplest version of this right is like the classic um you know nuclear Gandhi thing from Civilization Two which is like you know and you know we, we put we we uh, underflowed the uh, the the nuclear propensity variable and it maxed out so you know that that kind of thing right and like stuff like that on a smaller scale will cause these kinds of problems that are even more inscrutable because there's more variables to to look at and like not singular outcomes that are that don't make any sense right like yep um but yeah um some of it too much like i don't know well we'll we'll we'll, we'll see we'll see how it goes um and i'm confident they'll fix it but like it does seem like 
Um, something a friend of the cast, Monik, said that he that he generally didn't like about the games in general is like sometimes it feels like you're fighting the game to actually get the fights to work, right? Like as compared to something like StarCraft, which is a game that he prefers, right? Which mm-hmm. is like very crisp, um, and the pathing is very strong, and that's just because like it, 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 it is a micro intense game, whereas like the Total War games are kind of like slow moving and I'd say more macro focused. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, Total War, the, the slow moving part is the part that makes it you know total war in a lot of ways oh, yeah. right like absolutely you are you are you know you are predicting the future and you have to say okay i am going to want this unit there not now but in two and a half minutes right like yeah i, I think those are the, the kinds of decisions that get made a lot in total war just because the units are very um are very slow and bulky right um and uh and that i i, th- I think getting that to feel right is hard yeah it's so um, and I, to, to make the comparison, which I think is accurate, but is a meme is it's kind of, it's like dark souls, right? Like you're committing mm-hmm. to things and it needs to feel like I have played a lot of souls likes where like you, they've got, got, they think they've got those committing mechanics that don't feel quite right. And that's like, it's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to do. Um, yeah. and, but I don't think that that stuff is the worst stuff in the yeah. game. Uh, to me, the worst stuff in the game, uh, is traits and technologies and like skills and stuff like that. Uh, one of the things that is supposed to have happened. And I don't want to speculate too much on this, but it would make a lot of sense. People have been talking about how, you know, Warhammer three was developed by a different unit inside of creative assembly. Right. Um, and that the, so the, the, the DLC content for Warhammer two was handled by one unit simultaneously as Warhammer three was in development. And it seems like there are lessons that were learned during the development of Warhammer two that did not trickle down into the development of Warhammer three, because these are two different units. Right. Um, and so there are a ton of things that feel regressive. Like we have gone backwards from game to game. And I do think by the way, that, the, the timeline actually does sort of work out in this way. Because Warhammer 2, I think, launched with a lot of these sorts of problems, right? Where certain traits were bad and they were not worth taking. And they were kind of, like, uninteresting. And it's just like, God, why is this, you know, this is just not worth it for me to take this thing to give my guy, you know, whatever, plus eight growth in the local region. When is that ever going to matter, right? Um, but Warhammer 3... Or, or, but over the course of Warhammer 2, that's a lot of that stuff got buffed, such that those traits became more impactful and interesting. Um, a lot of the times, also by by narrowing their focus, so it's not oh, all you know, like all growth in this thing. It is a, you get a lot of growth in one province, not a lot of growth in all provinces, essentially, right? Um, or you get upkeep reduction for a unit rather than recruitment cost reduction for a unit. Recruitment costs are barely. You know, like a, a, a recruitment cost reduction barely matters because most of the time I'm recruiting a unit once and then it sits in my army for the rest of the game, basically, right? Upkeep reductions matter a lot, and so lowering that makes it makes a huge sort of uh, uh, difference. And I felt like Warhammer Three is just full of these, right? There are a lot of technologies that feel dead, where I'm just like, God, am I really going to spend, you know, six turns researching a technology that gives me plus four melee defense when I'm under siege. Like who cares? When is that ever going to matter? Right. Um, and, uh, and so the, the big thing that, that that's the big letdown to me. Um, it is, it's not a bug. It's not a bug related thing. It is just sort of this, like this weird, like developmental sit backwards where it feels like a lot of, uh, 
So, you know, a lot of the power that came from like leveling my lords up or, or getting deeper into a technology tree has sort of been stripped out. Um, yeah, and, and so of the <laughs> of the game, and, and from like from my experience, software development, right? Like I can I can guess that it's probably not directly like you know unit one didn't talk to unit two and that's why we didn't we can't have nice things. It's that unit two like like changing unit two's work in flight to like make Warhammer three up to up to pace was probably too much to do, especially with like a tight deadline, right? Yep. Yeah. No, that that's the thing that I don't think people understand about game design, which is that probably no one was working on this. They probably built all of the traits and technologies a long time ago, and they've just been sitting there, right? You know, like that's an easy thing for a designer to sort of knock out and not touch for months at a time, right? And um, and so that's sort of what I what I expect kind of uh, kind of happened, and I hope that that you know kind of gets like brought up to you know up to snuff, so to speak. Yeah. No, I I, I bet you. I bet you, like, I bet you if, like, because I, I noticed that, like, um, uh, like at least the stuff I was looking at over is tended to have more of the, like, less recruitment costs and more kind of, like, upkeep type of things. I bet you things that are, like, very simple numbers changes with, like, easy analogs were done just because that's probably an easy thing to do with, like, a single pass. Like, um, and again, again, this is all speculation on my part, but I bet you, like you said, like, some designer went and made those traits. And they probably built them in code with, like, some sort of internal tool set to, like, put set those up. Yeah, we also know that the Ogre Kingdoms were made by the Warhammer 2 team, okay. not the Warhammer 3 team. Okay, that um, makes sense. So, yeah. <laughs> I, I Like I said, my hope is that this stuff just, like, comes, you know, and yeah. and it gets, like, it gets... Gets a pass. Better. Yeah. 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 Uh, the, the, the kind of pro argument to this, I never I never like to assume, right, that, that there's some sort of, like, negligence involved or whatever. Right. So I do want to sort of give this Steelman argument, which is that, like, the pro argument to this... This, which is is that Warhammer 2 did have a lot of power creep issues, right? This is something that Mandalore Gaming talked about in his review. A lot of people were talking about where, you know, the nature of um, Warhammer 2 beat, one, it, it was very successful, right? Um, and so it's the scope of the game was able to sort of expand over time, right? The team gets bigger, you know, they can try more ambitious things because they have a lot of trust from, you know, like the fan base, et cetera, right? So when I'm looking at DLC that was coming out in year three and year four of Total War Warhammer 2's development, right? That DLC was w leaps and bounds ahead of, you know, the DLC that came, even like in War even Warhammer 1, but also just like in 2 in general, right? You know, all of these... Factions have incredibly unique mechanics and are just, like, completely changing the way that the game gets played or whatever. Um, and it just feels insanely weird going into a game as, you know, Ikit Claw is, is... People always talk about Ikit Claw. Going into a game as Ikit Claw versus going into a game as, like, you know, uh, Malaketh, right? One of the launched lords. He just Malaketh just has a lot less going on. Um, as a as a as a lord that than Ikki Claw did, um, and so the the idea is that maybe this is this stuff is put in there to address some of these power creep issues, right? Look, if every lord thinks that it is important to do a one trait dip to get ten percent movement speed, maybe dropping that to five percent movement speed is a is a deserved nerf to bring the power level of these things down overall. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um yeah well we're we're at our hour did you have anything else you want to talk about 
Uh, about no, uh, the last thing I do want to say is, I don't know, I feel like we've been harsher than I intended to be. Uh, I'm still fucking having a blast in Total War Warhammer 3. Um, I think the big thing that, that has sold me on 3 so much so fast is the is the faction mechanics, right? The faction, the launch faction mechanics of the races in Total War Warhammer 3 are so much more complex and complicated than what we got. It is like they are each individual DLC races from Warhammer 2, right? With with that level of mechanical interest. Um, so, so uh, you know, Serena Katarin doesn't feel like the second coming of Malekith. You know, she feels like she feels like another version of Ikiklaw or whoever else you'd want to put in that sort of uh, pedestal. And I love that all of these different factions have, you know, like their own unique mechanics um, that I can sort of play with and tool around with. My understanding is some of these, you know, are cooler and more fun than others, right? Everybody's making tier lists and power rankings, right? You know, um, but uh, but I just, I, I, that is the thing that sells me on, on Warhammer 3. Outside of just the fact that it is a, a new sandbox with toys I like, essentially, right? You know, I put 900 hours into total war warhammer 2 and at that point it was kind of getting hard to ever boot the game up again just because i had done so much in it right i had done so many skaven and wood elf and you know empire campaigns that getting eight completely new factions that play completely differently is really just compelling on its own you know because i get to take new toys into the into the toy box that's interesting yeah um yeah, I, I will say that I think the chances are high that I will bounce off of this game again. Um, <laughs> like, I, I went and checked. I had, like, 12 hours in Warhammer 2, and I know a significant part of that was me going back to play Vampire Counts. Um, not Vampire Counts. Um, Vampire, Vampire Coast. Because I thought that, like, that aesthetic was cool, and I still bounced off of that. Um, and so, I, like... This is, you know, and part of this is going to be like the consequences of like what it's surrounded by, right? Like, I think I'd rather go back and play more Crusader Kings three, and then I'm going to have nine point two and Destiny two Witch Queen and Elden Ring in the next week, right? So yeah. I think there's a high chance that like, like maybe I'll play after we finish this cast, and then I might not pick it up for a long time. And like, like I said before, right? It's going to be, this, it's probably going to be this thing where like. I will bounce off of it and it will stay on my machine for a year before I think about it again. Right. Like I think that's a, that's a very high chance of that happening and not because I hate the game, but because mm -hmm. it's not, it's not good enough to overcome my like kind of like natural aversion to like to the game so, so far. Um, and like, just kind of like it's based, like, frankly, I just kind of like found, found that I didn't super enjoy, I don't super enjoy the real time battles. Some of that's like this niggly bug stuff. And some of it's just kind of like, I find the battles to be kind of a slug. I like the more macro e econ stuff, and that's better served by a different game. So, um, yeah, yeah, um, you know, and maybe I'll probably check it out in a while, and I'll also probably play it with people want to play multiplayer. But like, that's probably going to be the extent of it. For me. Yeah, I, I we did talk about the multiplayer. I played a little bit of it, but the real thing I want to do is go deep on the multiplayer with like a big set of people, right? Me too. Because one of the big things that they did was they made it so you could play eight different people on the same you know, multiplayer map um, with simultaneous turns playing out, which are just like two huge quality of life things um, that I think could make for, I don't know, just really interesting uh, multiplayer sort of like campaigns. And the question, by the way, is, is it eight simply because there are only so many, you know, like legendary lords available or is it eight because that is the true maximum, right? right? Um, because there is a question of when Immortal Empires rolls around, and now you have dozens of, you know, start locations and faction leaders to play with. 
could there be dozens of players playing those things? Yeah. That would be nuts. My gut says no, but I'm going to bring up the possibility because it'd be cool. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, I'm sure there's going to be a cap. Like, you probably won't get dozens, but you might be able to – you might see – um, an increase. You also might see like a mid-cycle increase, right? Like it's like we figured out how to like make like twelve players available instead yeah. of like instead of eight. Um, you know, we did some optimization or something like that. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll see. Um, but with that, I'm gonna say um, we'll we'll move into. Uh, so so, buddy, have you ever uh, had a fart that sounded like a hentai moan? <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Twitter wants me to. Do you think I might like this? I guess. <laughs> It must have been people that I, the thing that I see is people that I, uh, when people I follow like tweets that are on accounts I don't follow, I, they, they pop up or whatever. And I'm just like, why Twitter? Why? But do, yes, do, do, today, you know, do you know who Jessica Negri is? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know, yeah. She's, uh, she's like the cosplayer with, with she's like a thirst trap cosplayer. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's the perfect term for it. Thirst trap cosplayer. Yeah. No, no disrespect, Miss, Miss Negri, mm. but like, you know, that, that, that is what she is. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So she had this, this ridiculous tweet that, uh, that, that Twitter thought Putty might be interested. <laughs> Twitter, Twitter, Twitter owning me so hard. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, what have, what, have, what have you been up to this week? Um, so, uh, so big things. I finished uh, Fall of Hyperion. Um, so after after I finished, I did a little bit of like kind of like you know uh, meta you know reading on Wikipedia about like the the process. And the author of the Hyperion the Hyperion Cantos is the kind of the name of the book series. It's four books: Hyperion, Fall of Hyperion, Rise of Endymion, and Endymion. Um, and the way he meant it to be read is it's it's really two books, right? Um, represented by Hyper Hyperion and Fall of Hyperion in one book, and um, Rise of Endymion and Endymion are the second book. But like the realities of publishing split them into to, to two two volumes per. Um, and uh, but I thought I thought it was excellent. I'm definitely gonna roll into Endymion. Um, uh, Hyperion and Fall of Hyperion are a very uh, are, are like. A complete story on their own. You can read those and be very happy. You can probably just read Hyperion and be happy with it. But I would highly recommend going into Hyperion Cant uh, uh, or Fall of Hyperion. Um, and you can see, like, there's some very cool stuff. Like, this came out in, like, like the first one came out in, like, 89. And there's a bunch of stuff that's, like, basically, like, like, there's a line in the second book about, like, you know, kind of, like, like the one of the themes is, like, there's, like, this, like, AI's significant force in the world. And, like, they have, like, you know, things that, like, they have, like, bots in the world and it's like yeah we started like we we kind of uh forgot that like the bots existed or it's something along the lines of like there were cameras everywhere and we didn't think twice about doing private things in front of them and it's like wow that feels very relevant right like and he predicted a lot of stuff and also there's also some very clear cultural influences i don't want to spoil it because pretty big plot point in the book but there's like a very clear influence on some fundamental 90s and early aughts uh, science fiction stories um, that would like, you'll be like, Oh, that's where that came from. Um, when, when, when you read it. And I highly recommend it to, to, uh, to everybody. Um, I, I listened to it on audible. Um, the first book is an ensemble cast because so the first book, the style is, um, is it's kind of like Canterbury tales, like pretty explicitly. Um, there's, okay. there's seven pilgrims, I think it's seven pilgrims um, going on a pilgrimage to Hyperion. That's the name of the, the planet. Um, and each kind of section is 
told from one of the characters' points of view. Um, and so for the for the audiobook, they had different people read the different sections. Um, I thought it was very very good. Um, uh, and uh, the second book is not it does not have that narrative device, um, so it's all. But I still thought the audiobooks on Audible were great. Um, uh, that's kind of like what I do. You know, I listen to books while I'm like doing house chores or whatever. But I'd also recommend reading it. Um, the uh, the other big thing uh, that I want to shout out is. Um, I, uh, as I've mentioned before, I've kind of been watching Taskmaster on YouTube. They have, like, it's a British show, so they've got pretty much all the episodes for free for on U.S. YouTube. Um, and uh, I am reliably informed that if you're in the U.K., you can't watch it on YouTube unless you use some piece of technology that makes it seem like you're not in the U.K. Um, uh, but uh, it is, I, so I've been, I started kind of in the middle, and I've been working backwards, weirdly, just because, like, I, like the first episode I saw was, like, season five. Um, mm -hmm. I finally got to season one. And the first task of season one is a fucking banger. I'm going to put a link to it in the description. I don't know if you saw it, buddy, but I linked it to, to, one, of, to one of our, our, our group chats. Um, and it is just ball-bustingly hilarious. Like, the, the task is, like, eat as much watermelon as you can in a minute. And it is just, like, just the, the way they, like, edit it. Just, like, the, the, the way it goes is, is, is so funny. It's so funny. Um, I highly recommend this show to everybody. Um, uh, it's got a bunch of, like, so... Famous British comedians in that they are famous in Britain. I don't recognize most of them, um, but like uh, the the host is 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 uh, Greg Davies. Excuse me, um, uh, but uh, uh, my phone went off. My, my apologies. But yes, it is an excellent <laughs> it is an excellent show, um, and uh, I would uh, I would highly recommend it to everyone. But that's those are the two big things that I've done with my week because I have been I had um my septic tank overflowed which was my big weekend pro <laughs> weekend thing and uh that's not great um I'm not gonna bore you guys with the details but uh uh you know not everything those details sound awful yeah given what a septic tank does yeah uh, <laughs> yeah I mean the big thing that I did this weekend was obviously play a gazillion hours of Total War Warhammer 2 but I have been continuing in my just descent into the abyss the bleak unending abyss of machine gambling the machine gambling addiction mm. book that i've been reading which continues to fuck me up in ways that i don't understand and i hate it so much um the 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 thing that it's talking about mostly now is it's talking about like the ways in which casinos so th one of the core theses of the book right is that it's nobody's fault in in the way that we would conventionally think you know, it draws this parallel to the way that the NRA has that thing. It's like uh, guns don't kill people, people kill people, right? Um, and it sort of presupposes an opposition to that, right? Where people don't kill people, guns kill people, right? And the, and the thing that the book s describes is that it is neither and both, right? Which is to say that a gun without a person is just a, an, a paperweight. It is an object of metal, right? right. You need... You need motive, right? Uh, you need opportunity. You need a will to murder with a gun in order to murder someone, right? But also, people do not murder people as often without guns. Guns reliably change the way in which someone commits a murder, right? Sure. And the same thing is true for for gamblers, right? And and this 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 interaction with gambling and machine gambling, right? Where it is neither the you know gambling manufacturer who is you know, creating a system that is so incredibly exploitative or whatever, right, that that it is preying upon this one person. 
And it is, nor is it, oh, this weak-willed person who just can't control their, you know, their their impulses and urges and just has to constantly pull the lever on a fucking, you know, like on a slot machine. It is the interaction between the two things that creates the machine gambling addict in the way that, like, in the way that we see it, right? And that's one of the things that it, like, kind of wants to examine. And as part of that, it actually goes into incredible detail about how, you know, the desire to maximize profit is so abstracted from the process of being a person, you know, g like gambling away at a machine that it actually kind of makes sense that such a predatory machine kind of arose as this way of like evolutionary happenstance because like, you know, and one of the things that, you know, it, it, it one of the things that it draws this distinction of is it's not like gambling companies are individual people with discernible thoughts and brains, right? Yeah. It is not as though the gambling company goes, I am going to design the machine that will, you know, that will be predatory, right? What happens is that machine gets constructed by dozens and designed by dozens of different people, all who who touch a little piece of it. Right. And so it's like, oh, well, I'm going to I am the person who designs the chair on the machine. And I'm going to make the chair a little more comfortable. Right. So people want to sit in the chair. I'm the person who programs the lights and the music on the machine. And I want the lights and the music to be something that is pleasing, you know, and and t t for people to look at. And to hear, and I, you know, it, it just goes, and it's all of these people who are individually trying to like refine their thing, so much so that they kind of like, in aggregate, create this, you know, incredibly predatory piece of piece of machinery, right? Um, and on the opposite side, you know, it also describes something that I think is tough to conceive of at least for a lot of people who understand this thing right like i talked about last time um the zone and that was the thing that really spooked me right is these gamblers were were describing the zone that they were trying to get into this disassociative zone where they were able to sort of escape their their lives right <laughs> and just achieve the zone um with with any machine they're sitting down at their stool they're pulling the lever they're in the zone for five hours they love it the zone is great right all this other stuff um and it goes into some detail about how two-way gambling addict, that is a good, that it, it is not gambling, right? It is, and it has nothing to do with the making or losing of money, right? It is quite literally paying the casino for a transaction in the way that you would pay anyone for a transaction. And the gambler is getting the valuable thing out of that transaction, which is the zone, right? All they are, do they are paying for access to the zone. They are not paying for, you know, the chance at a blowout, right? Winning and losing don't matter. What matters is the zone. Um, and this whole thing is just incredibly depressing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> to read through. Does, does it does it like talk about like is there like like you know I've talked about how like whenever I train you like when I got a slot machines like I just find it uncompelling because of video games essentially right mm -hmm. have they talked about like you know maybe putting someone in a chair in front of like a machine that doesn't like take real money or doesn't take money and let's like can can someone get like the same feeling out of that or just like like has somebody tried that like it's like a kind of like gambling therapy. Uh, like, I, I have no I have no idea. I mean, it's funny because there are different testimonials in the book. One testimonial, which is actually the best one and my favorite of them, is a woman who said that she was um, – who wanted to demystify 
the slots for herself, right? You know, she was spending all this money on slot machines that she decided to get a job and she got a night job at a slot machine assembly factory in Las Vegas um, or in Nevada, yeah, outside yeah. of Las Vegas. Um, and, and she just described how it pulled her even deeper into the, you know, like into the whole thing. Cause even though she understood the mechanics and she could literally take apart and put a slot machine back together, the thing that mattered are the odds of winning and losing on the display. And that comes in a chip that is shipped from somewhere else entirely, yeah. right? And so even though, you know, she was trying to do the thing where, you know, and I've talked about this before with, like, you know, Square Enix and Final Fantasy fourteen, for instance, right? It was very hard for me to conceive of playing fourteen as a game because I was working on it as work, right? Um, and she was trying to do that same sort of thing. But because this crucial piece of information was kept from her, right, which was essentially, you know, the the actual gambling program itself um she goes on to describe how she only went deeper in she, she only fell deeper down down the rabbit hole right she was building these machines and then going to casinos on the machines that she was building and gambling away her paycheck um uh, though interestingly, she did talk about how the company had fake versions of the machines that they built in the in the lunchroom that you could that didn't take money that you could that you could gamble on, um, and that, that was the thing that and that, that was the thing that she was doing. Though actually, maybe that answers your question because she yeah. also talked about later using her lunch break to go to a casino to play for real money. So maybe the process of doing it for fake didn't work. Her, yeah, no, like, that makes sense. There's got to be some stakes there, and like you know, video games introduce artificial stakes, right? Like, which which is yeah. kind of like you know, that's the thing that gets you in the in the door, um, and maybe that's maybe that's the thing. Like, it has to be better than like like fake money, right? It has to be like some sort of like extra, like maybe not even extra, extrinsic, but like some sort of reward, right? Like that like makes sense in the in in that in that sense. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you know, like this is a, this is the thing that mobile games talk about and do all the time, right? Where they want to make. Uh, they want to make fake money because it makes you – you don't feel like you are spending real money, right? Yeah. If something says that it's $20, you think more about that transaction because $20 is, like, is real. But if $20 is 350, you know, gemstones or yeah. whatever, and the thing costs 350 gemstones, it is a lot easier to buy that. Right. Yeah, but, um, but that, that, because it's obfuscated. That seems like a different thing, though, right? Like it, it seems like, <laughs> like that sort of predatory behavior by a game company seems like a very different thing than the predatory behavior you're describing from a, uh, from a from a automated slot machine. Because I also don't find mobile games super compelling either, because you basically like, yep. a lot of them are pay to win, right? Like so. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, a lot of those, a lot of those kinds of mobile games are built to inconvenience you, such that you pay to get rid of that inconvenience. Yeah, and. Um, I'm I'm I just don't deal with it, you know. I played Candy Crush. I we, there was a time when we were when we were both I think playing Candy Crush because you said you were playing it just to see what it was about, and I did the same thing. And you play through a lot of the first levels because they're pretty easy, right? And then you get to points where it, it gets harder, and you like you're failing your your thing because you're not doing it in enough moves or whatever. And that I just churn after that. Yeah, you know? like I'm not gonna buy the two bucks. To, to keep progressing fuck that right like i played for a while and like 
uh, the, uh, the thing that broke me was like there's like these checkpoint levels to like like access like the next section of the map, and they're cons consistently harder. And then I realized they were using the same level that was like very hard and very likely to fail you out on luck. And I was like, I saw a level again. I was like, oh, I was stuck here for like five days, burning all five of my lives. I'm not going back to this, right? Um, uh, but that seems like the opposite of this of this mechanical gambling. Thing. Yeah. It seems like it's trying to get all the inconveniences out of your way. You're just like not thinking about putting money in the machine. Oh no, that is absolutely yeah. true. One of the things they talk about is, you know, that's actually interesting because they don't obfuscate the money. One of the things they talk about is the process of digitizing your money into the slot machine was a huge thing that increased pro you know productivity is yeah. the amount of time that an individual person spends on, on a machine and the rate at which they're making bets right one of the things that really increased productivity is uh first it was atms right so in the in the 1980s atms are existing so now i don't need to go to a bank for instance, or someplace to cash a paycheck to get a bunch of cash. I take that up to a cashier cage. The cashier cage changes that for coins. I take those coins. I put it in the in the thing. They talk about how there are there are offloading points, right, where people will um, they will opt out of the transaction somewhere along that line, where they're like, you know what, right, this is too much of a hassle. I don't I don't I don't need this sort of thing. ATMs changed that because it took that bank piece and put it in the casino. You can just put an ATM in your casino. Now you go, you do the ATM, you take the money out. You give it to the cashier in the cage. Okay. Then they talked about how digitizing the money such that, you know, you're not getting chain, like buckets of coins, which are unwieldy and, and tough to deal with, right? You are instead getting a ticket, and the ticket has a certain amount of digitized money on it, right? And you put that into the machine, and you're hitting your, you know, your button, you're pulling your slot on that or whatever. That also increased productivity a whole bunch. And the final thing that they did was they essentially put... It's not quite one to one, but they essentially put um, ATMs inside of the individual slot machines, right? Which is the ability for you to draw on a line of credit inside of the slot machine. So what you could do was, <coughs> you could um, you could essentially put in a ticket, and it would give you a line of credit. You could you could keep going. It would give you a line of credit if you hit zero, and it would say, "Do you want to take out however much line of credit?" Right? And you have to pay that back essentially. Um, and even though, you know, and to me, I was like, I can't believe a casino would do that. Right. Like uh, the casino is essentially acting as, at a, as a bank at that point. Right. right? Where the, if they're extending you a line of credit and willing to let you gamble on zero dollars. Right. Um, but you know, they just talked about the productivity increase goes up, right. Because it, it puts someone in front of a machine for, you know, longer. Yeah. Well, but nowhere in that process do they obfuscate the, the process of buying the money, right? Yeah. You know, so it is sort of interesting. I don't know. I, I like I'm not even close to done with this book, but I'm gonna keep reading it because I, I guess I don't know, I fucking hate myself. <laughs> hey. I look for like forward to network next week's update. Like I actually saw this book referenced somewhere else and I can't quite remember. I'll see if I can pick it up for next time. But um I I picked it up because uh I'm and petty. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I kept reading people on Reddit talking about using cheap, you know, like, uh, you know, the cheap game design tactics for like casino game design tactics to like, you know, force you to play World of Warcraft or whatever. And I was like, I don't think this is real. But I didn't know enough to know that it wasn't yeah, real. Yeah. So I am now reading the book to prove, in fact, no, that is not real. That is not what, you know, that's not what's happening. Um, <laughs> that was the journey that I took. Fair enough. Well, 
we're at the end of the hour and a half, and I I have a pretty hard out right now. So uh, uh, no no worries, just like some personal stuff I gotta I, I gotta handle. But I'm gonna say okay. uh, if you'd like to email us about any things we talked about on this podcast and uh, uh, or uh, about Warhammer Total War Three or, or anything like that, you can email us email us at subdirtsplaygame at gmail.com or podcast at subdirtsplaygames.com. Uh, you can follow us on Twitch TV some play games where these go out live. Um, please rate and review us on all of the uh, podcast services that you that you hear this on. Um, watch us on YouTube, all that good stuff. But do you have anything you're looking to promote? Uh, I am going to be playing uh, games this this Friday on the Akupara. You know, I'll, I'll be streaming. Uh, we're moving the stream up to 10 a.m. Pacific time from 11 a.m. Pacific time. So if you are a regular of that stream, uh, it starts a little earlier this time. Also, I think we're watching The Fast and the Furious because I haven't actually checked the the movie night poll, but I put The Fast and the Furious up. Hell yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I put The Fast and the Furious up for the for the movie night oh. poll. So this Friday at 4 p.m., uh, we'll be watching The Fast and the Furious in the Akupara Games Discord server. Did we so. miss? We might have to catch up on Fast and the Furious here. I think we were supposed to like do this month to month, and I think we've already missed two at this point. Oh, so my God. Yeah, you're right. We might have to do it. Well, I'm so fucking excited. Yeah. Oh, my God. I love these. Uh, this is going to be the greatest year of this podcast yet, you guys. All right. Well, with that, I'm going to say until next time, dear listeners. Until next time, loyal listeners. <laughs>